Welcome to the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. Welcome to the newest episode of the Untitled Investment Talk. Today, as always, I'm joined by my co-host and colleague, Carl Michael. Also, we have a very special guest today, Duke University's very own Jimmy Lance. He's in charge of their fintech program. Jimmy, thanks for taking the time for us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. So as always, obviously, nothing we say here before we start, I want to point it out, is by any means investment advice, legal advice, tax advice. We're not qualified in any which way to give this kind of advice. And it's all just our opinion. Do your own research. Investing in digital assets is connected with very high levels of risk. And you should absolutely know what you're doing and not listen to us when it comes to these topics. So let's jump into it directly, maybe. Jimmy, you had some very senior management positions in the financial services and consulting industry over the years. Amongst others, for example, Chief Risk and Chief Credit Officer at Wells Fargo, Director of Technology Risk at Wells Fargo Wealth Management, Director Banking Capital Markets at PricewaterhouseCoopers. When did you really get into the crypto world and why are you so passionate about digital assets? Wow, great question to start with. So I would be remiss if I didn't uh, tell you that the name of the person who actually introduced me. It was a young guy by the name of Reed Timsio who was a, a rather annoying undergraduate student, a friend of my daughter's at Davidson College here in the U.S. And he just kept going on and on. This is probably around 2015, uh, 2014, about this Bitcoin and blockchain and how it was going to revolutionize the world. And every time I would go to visit her, he was always there and he was always asking me about it because he knew I was working in finance. And that was my introduction. He was so annoying about it that I just had to look into it. And I was very taken with the technology. I was very taken with this idea of creating a new kind of store of value. Being a finance guy, things that are like that, things are stores of value, were very interesting to me. And this idea of being able to do it in a very seamless virtual manner was, was quite captivating. Long story short, that annoying guy, Reed Timsio, ended up marrying my daughter. He's now my son-in-law, and he's also a professor. <laughs> Congrats. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's a left place. And what you're saying also is really showing again the power of the narrative around this digital store of value really without a clear issuer. I mean, for myself and maybe also for Carmichael, it probably has been quite similar where there is still, I think, these people that really get hooked on the narrative and uh, see how much value there is not only in the digital asset technology itself, but just in the possibilities it offers to do things anew. For example, finance, what we now see with decentralized finance. Now, what role does crypto actually play at Duke University uh, where you are located at? And what's your role there? And what do your students actually learn in their courses about blockchain, uh, DLT, digital assets? Right. That's that's an interesting way to, to put it. What do my students learn? I think I, I know what I would like them to learn. I suppose you would have to talk to some of them to find out what they actually glean from the, the course. But my role at Duke is the director of two of the Master of Engineering programs. So I'm in the engineering school, first of all, not in the business school. And uh, even though my doctorate's from a business school, I believe that much of fintech really belongs in engineering. Because in engineering, we build things, everything that you learn is applied rather than in business school where things tend to the more theoretical side. And, and so I love building things and so that's why I'm there, but I, I do think it works a little bit better for students also. So I'm the director of the master of engineering in financial technology, as well as the master of engineering in cybersecurity at Duke university's Pratt school of engineering. And as far as the classes go, I teach a, a class in blockchain that's rather basic. It assumes very little knowledge for students. And these are primarily graduate students, although we do usually have a couple of undergrads, maybe seniors, in the course. This year, I also started teaching a Coursera course in blockchain. And it's a very, very different kind of student in that course. 
that course tends to have people that are probably 10 or 15 years into their career. So think, you know, late 30s, maybe early 40s age-wise. And they come from literally all over the world, including there are at least one or two from Germany who are in the class. And uh, it's a little bit different than the course that I teach at Duke, but they both kind of start in that same era where I'm assuming very little knowledge, but we ramp up very quickly. One of the things I love doing when I'm teaching is hands-on things. As I said, I like building things. And so one of the first things that students do is they build a virtual wallet. They don't download one. They actually go to MetaMask and they assemble a virtual wallet. And then they load it with uh, test currency. We use test ETH. And uh, the, the kind of the second hands-on project they do is they build a smart contract, a simple multi-signature wallet that has a couple of conditions that so they can understand how the conditions work inside of a smart contract and what the effect is of that. And then we go on and do a few other things and we end up, they create their own ERC-20 tokens. So they're, they're actually creating their own tokens of value. Of course, they are worth nothing because there's nothing in back of them. But every student, and this isn't a group project, this is every student creates their own ERC-20 tokens and uh, launches those and then you know brings them back into their wallet and then they have to transfer them over a public blockchain into a class wallet. And uh, so there's a lot of understanding of the blockchain technology, but a lot of that understanding is through actually doing different kinds of projects that are that are very applied. That sounds pretty amazing. I, I'm a firm believer, of course, in uh, working on projects in order to accumulate knowledge and actually get to know how things work out. So yeah, absolutely there with you. Now, we actually got connected by Jonas, uh, a member of Untitled Inc. and uh, former contributor to uh, the Horizon blockchain ecosystem. And I think he was also in charge of um, their developers relations department. You are actually serving on the board of directors of the Zen Foundation. How did you get there and um, how did that happen? It's a really interesting kind of turn of events. I had the opportunity to meet one of the founders, Rob Viglioni, some years ago when he was at university studying for his PhD. Now, Rob wasn't the typical PhD candidate. He had already been out in the workforce for about 10 years. He worked in uh, military intelligence here in the United States, as did his wife. And he finished about 10 years in the military. He went back for his PhD in finance. And he and I met through some mutual uh, contacts that I had at the university and just hit it off immediately. And this is before he founded the uh, Horizon. And so as time went on, he, he actually left university to, uh, didn't finish his PhD, which I was a little bit disappointed with, but he <laughs> went, founded Horizon with another gentleman, Rolf. And so they founded Horizon and they put a lot of time, a lot of effort into it. They had development teams around the world. And so it, it worked out really, really well. But as they, they started to grow, they also realized we need to have a little bit more understanding of oversight, of governance, how large companies should operate, some of the controls that need to be in place. And so because of my past roles in finance and in large financial organizations, they asked me to join the board to help out on some of those areas that I was really familiar with. And because I was familiar with those structures as well as blockchain, it was just a, a perfect fit. So lo and behold, I, I continue on the board there. And uh, just by coincidence, Rob did go back. He finished his dissertation defense about two months ago, and he will actually receive his PhD officially on this Saturday. Uh, okay, finally you made it. <laughs> that's, he that's he cool. did make it. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. Our topic today is crypto uh, derivatives, right? And uh, we think you are a very good uh, person to talk to because not only of your academic, but also of your, your business background in, in finance. And crypto derivatives are, are really an amazing market. I mean, we are not only talking about Bitcoin futures and options here, but we increasingly see altcoins being relevant to the derivative market. Just yesterday, so May 4th, Ethereum option trading volume for the first time ever surpassed the trading volume of, of Bitcoin on, on Deribit. So a lot is happening here. And we want to approach this topic of crypto derivatives a little bit maybe step by step in, in our discussion here. And just to get everybody uh, on the same page, what are derivatives? So 
we talk about financial instruments here, which have a value that is reliant or derived from an underlying asset or a group of assets that can be equities, commodities, bonds, currencies, or group of assets that can be, can be indices. And it's mainly about futures contracts, forwards, options, and especially in the traditional financial worlds, also about swaps. So I think that has been part of your life for a long time. Now, since you are more into blockchain and also crypto, I mean, you are the right guy to answer what the difference between derivatives and the legacy financial system and in crypto. I love the fact that you phrased it that way. That's, that's the perfect way to think about it. So I'm going to back up here really quick. I started in finance uh, a long time ago. I don't want to admit how long ago as a trader trading equities and derivatives and then moved into the algorithmic, the electronic and algorithmic space, again, mainly in the equities and the derivative space, both for single assets and for baskets and those kinds of things. And though those, are, those have changed quite significantly, the actual derivatives, the structure of the derivatives in the listed markets haven't changed. Volumes have certainly gone up quite a bit. And there are some parameters, times and things like that have, have shortened for expirations, but the actual structure of them hasn't changed. And one of the things that I think that crypto and DeFi offer is they offer a level of access that doesn't exist in the listed markets for individuals. So I'll give you a great example. You, you mentioned the very last thing you mentioned was swaps. As a retail investor, you can't go out and buy swaps in, in the listed market. That would be very, very difficult, if not impossible, for anyone that's not an accredited investor, an institution. Well, DeFi to me is kind of the great equalizer. Not only can retail people avail themselves of all of the, the different derivatives that you mentioned, but they can structure them in whatever way they want via smart contracts and things like that. You can see more and more derivatives being created that are very specific to, to the need of a particular individual investor, something that doesn't really exist in the listed marketplace. And I think that that's one of the things that DeFi offers kind of across the board is they are the great equalizer. I am, haven't been shy about saying that I think that when we, we look at the listed markets, when we look at the traditional financial services industry, retail investors have not been treated terribly well in, by the firms, by regulators and things like that. In fact, I would think that there was a, a regulation that came out not too long ago by Baffin in Germany around the delivery of uh, prospectuses. They weren't going to let a, uh, a particular cryptocurrency exchange do fractional equities, you know, tokenize them and, and do that. Instead, they were saying, well, you're not delivering prospectuses on time. And so you, we're, we're not going to allow that. We're going to fine you and all kinds of things like that. Well, when was the last time uh, anybody ever looked at a prospectus or had one delivered, you know, uh, as a retail investor? I think that the most regulation right now is regulating the traditional industry. And we're seeing that kind of proliferate in, in a lot of different ways. Is there some protection of retail investors? Of course there is. I'm not saying that it's they're thrown to the wayside by regulators, but I do think that there is, has been up to this point, at least less emphasis on kind of the practical nature. And so what we're seeing is a huge number of individual investors Go to the DeFi space where you can avail yourself of all kinds of derivatives. You can create your own. You have that ability, something that isn't available in, in the listed market. So it's not a if listed market or this new crypto market. The, the availability of many of these assets only exists for retail investors in the crypto market. It doesn't exist in the other market. Do you have an idea about how much is retail and how much is institutional? And we might see a stronger institutional push even in the crypto derivative market. You talked about DeFi, which is a very yeah, immature space from an institutional point of view. But, but what do you think? What is currently the percentage of retail? What is institutional? What kind of institutions are in there? Is this only hedge funds? Can you give an idea on this? Well, so I, I have looked and tried to find across the globe. And of course, the thing about cryptocurrency and the DeFi space is everybody's anonymous. Uh, so your, your counterparty is anonymous. So you don't know if it's a, if it's a large hedge fund on the other side of your trade or if it's just another individual on the other side of your trade. So that makes it a little bit more difficult. However, 
one, there are some metrics out around active traders and things like that. And so we are seeing a lot of very active, what we might call day traders. And that might be some proxy for, for institutional or at least large active interest. And that's quite prolific. Not only do we see that in certain areas, we see it spread throughout the globe, these kinds of active traders. But I think firm metrics around strictly institutional interest versus retail interest, I don't think those exist in a very definitive way. And I would say that in some cases, it's almost hard to draw that line. There are a lot of smaller hedge funds where you have, on the other hand, a lot of very large retail investors. And so there's a, a very, very large gray area, I would say, between those two. We, we certainly are not seeing large institutions in the space. And that you can tell, one, because they're not allowed to, in some cases, to be active in that space. But the other thing is you're not seeing some of the development and some of the things that you would expect from institutional investors. So for instance, order management systems and portfolio management systems and things like that aren't really set up right now to capture those kinds of trades. And so it would be even difficult, I think, for, for a lot of them to do it just from a, a mere bookkeeping and accounting kind of standpoint, which I know is really, really boring, but I think they would have some, some issues with that. But I don't think we are seeing that kind of a large institution. I think the hedge funds are probably some of the larger players, as well as family offices and some sovereign funds. Yeah, I would agree. And especially you're right, most of data is anonymous. Uh, if you look at the CME data, where you have to do KYC and AML, and there the, the majority is, is hedge funds, but there are also a category of other investors, which is almost uh, has the same are same amount. Maybe this is kind of predictive for the whole market. And uh, you were referring to what are potential barriers for institutional uh, investors to enter the space. We'll come back to this later on, I think with a couple of detailed uh, questions. But before we do this, maybe let's switch back to the traditional markets, so traditional derivatives markets. Here, derivatives are mainly used, if not for speculative purposes, but mainly used to hedge risks. And we want to explore the difference between hedging risks in crypto and hedging risks in traditional markets. How does this rich hacking work in the traditional world? And so in the, in the traditional world, we use all kinds of derivatives to hedge risk. So, and this, is, this kind of draws back, there was a paper in the early 1970s, 1971 maybe, that Milton Friedman, the economist from UChicago, wrote. And at the time, I think it was a little bit controversial. But it was a paper on the need for, for futures markets. In, in, and he was talking in particular in currencies, coincidentally, and kind of what, you know, there, there was an opportunity to, to create a very active market in, in currencies at the time. And early 1970s, of course, is when the U.S. dollar came off of the gold standard and all of a sudden everything could start floating. And the, his point in, in doing this and talking about this was that when we have floating currencies, for large corporations, say international corporations that may be pay taking payments in a number of different types of currencies, British pounds, sterling, uh, euros, yen, yuan, if you're taking payments, you have to be able to hedge out the fluctuation risk. Because if you sell $100 million worth of goods, you would really like to book $100 million, not, not $98 million, right? And so derivatives are often used for, for very simple things like that. It's a way for you to hedge out that risk immediately. Now, there is some cost, of course, of doing that, but you're taking out the, that fluctuation. There are also derivatives that are used for other purposes to enhance portfolios and enhance portfolio exposures and things along those lines. But on a strictly risk hedging type of notion, that's what a lot of firms use different kinds of options and futures forwards. That's what they're using these for. And so that's a, that's a very, very different notion. And, and, and there's there's a very firm structure around those derivatives. If you look, options and futures are the easiest ones. You can look on a lot of different exchanges or go on to your favorite website and see what option chains look like. And so you can very, very easily see that. The other thing about those is we've had, those have been around for a long time, right? Those have been around for 40 or 50 years. And so we've had a lot of research done. Everybody is pretty familiar with Black-Scholes and Black-Scholes-Merton, which is a formula that we use to, to price options. And everybody understands it's not 100% correct, but it's, it's pretty good. And it's predicated on a number of things that exist 
things like you know time and strike price, the implied volatility that, that is very, very available in the traditional financial markets. We don't have that same availability in the crypto markets right now. The last count I saw by one of the, the companies that keeps some metrics on crypto exchanges is there were about 259 crypto exchanges in operation. Now, most of those are not very big. You guys are probably solicited on a weekly basis. Do you want to open your own crypto exchange? Some firm will, for a certain amount of money, will, will help you launch a crypto exchange. We know there are a handful of large crypto exchanges, one that just went public here in the United States, Coinbase. But there is no such sense of a consolidated tape or anything like that. And so creating those formulas hasn't really happened yet in the crypto space. So understanding correct pricing, even having benchmark pricing, I think that's one of the things that probably keeps some institutions hesitant. It's very hard to mark a portfolio when you don't have good pricing metrics. So I I do understand that side of it. And so to me, that says we need more research in the area. We need to have more people working in this area, not just developing new products, but also understanding how these products actually operate over long periods of time, not just next week. And so that's that's kind of on the, the hedging side of things. The speculation side of things, I think everybody understands speculation. Yeah, definitely. Now, thanks for giving us a good overview on f- how this works in the traditional markets. Maybe before we discuss how things look on the crypto side and whether crypto derivatives markets are already at the point of being mature enough for proper risk management, let's first understand a bit better how the market is segmented right now. So currently we have, in principle, three types of venues for trading, um, options and futures in crypto. First of all is the very traditional exchanges like the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, CME, the crypto native Centralized venues are the second type where you already mentioned um, Coinbase, which right now are not the ones we're looking at, but rather Binance, FTX, BitMEX, which were one of the earlier players. Then, of course, Deribit and FTX for options trading. But now we also have these very new kind of exchanges, the fully decentralized ones in the DeFi space. Um, there where you can also trade on-chain futures and options. And some of these protocols are, for example, Hagic and Open that are still quite obscure, not that large yet. And there is the specialty or the very special thing about them, which is you don't have a counterparty. So you also don't have a counterparty risk. It runs fully decentralized on smart contracts. Now, maybe we can dive a bit into... How do these different platforms actually work? Where do you think we're at right now in terms of maturity in the centralized traditional ones, centralized crypto native, and the DeFi exchanges? Where would you already trade or why would you not trade on one of those yet? Yeah, very nascent is where how I would I would capture it uh, at this point. I think these are very we're very, very early in the maturity stage. And it's funny you mentioned option chains and things like that. Some of the more traditional structures we're starting to see emerge. I'm anxious to see something that is a different kind of structure, a structure that is maybe a, that facilitates things in a little bit different way than some of the traditional exchanges. Again, I think that the, one of the main problems that we have right now is there is no such thing as a consolidated tape. Some of these have open APIs and you could consolidate them yourself to some extent, still not wholly. And so that price discovery and things that we normally use can't really function in, in the same way right now. I think we will see a consolidation of exchanges. And as that happens, the, the crypto market will become more mature because we'll have more information because Everything around, when when we're talking about any kind of traded assets, pricing, accurate pricing is is the name of the game. You want to make sure that all the information that is available is is actually used in the pricing. And when you have different things trading on different exchanges, it may facilitate some arbitrage opportunities, but even those are are kind of tough. Usually, I think about arbitrage very, very positively because arbitrage usually seeks to you know take out any sort of noise in pricing and things like that it forces prices to consolidate we don't yet have that really in the crypto space and so it is fairly nascent still 
The one thing crypto exchanges do have that I'm a huge, huge fan of is something that you mentioned around counterparty risk. And don't think that this isn't a real thing. I think a lot of people say, oh, well, counterparty risk isn't real anymore. You know, we have the DTCC in the United States and we have, you know, uh, the BIS and places like that. And that's not the case at all. Counterparty risk actually manifests itself in a number of different ways. In the United States, about a month and a half ago, we saw that in the listed equity space when GameStop has kind of started going crazy. It's a, a retailer of games here in the U.S. And for one reason or another, the, the price was that the price was pushed up by retail investors. There was a big short squeeze. And when that happened, the clearing organization said, whoa, this is becoming very, very volatile. We're going to need to have a more margin basically to, to hedge out the risk from the, the brokers that are trading this. It ended up being a, a really big deal for one brokerage firm, Robinhood, and they had a very difficult time meeting some of their margin requirements. It ended up going to government authorities, uh, ended up stepping in. They had to testify before Congress, all those kinds of things. So this notion of counterparty risk sometimes manifests itself in a little bit different ways. In that case, DTCC was kind of the counterparty. And so it, it raised up these, these other issues. Well, remember, the exchange system that we use, it, it has been around for hundreds of years, and it hasn't changed a whole heck of a lot. It's, it's become more electronic and things like that, but the actual structure is still very piecemeal. So on a traditional exchange, for instance, you can you know, trade stocks, but if you have to go to a different party to actually clear those stocks and settle those stocks, and then you have to go to a different party to custody those stocks, and then you had to go to a different party to access the exchanges. So you have a lot of different parties that are involved. You have a, a brokerage firm, you have an exchange, you have a clearing uh, and settlement organization, you have a custody organization. Well, crypto exchanges have, have consolidated all that down. If I go to Binance and I do a trade, I don't have to worry about a broker, right? Binance access my broker, Binance access the exchange, Binance clears and settles the transaction almost immediately, as you mentioned. And I can even custody stuff uh, at Binance if I want to. I can leave my assets there and custody them there. So it, it, it's a very, very different kind of structure. So that has actually moved, I would say, light years ahead of what we have in the traditional finance space. And so because they have that ability to do those kinds of things, I think what we, we haven't seen yet is a somewhat non-traditional derivative structure. And so that's why... I think I'm, I hold out a lot of promise in that space that we're going to see, you know, maybe what we think of as option chains change into something a little bit different or futures. We're going to see them change into something maybe a little bit different. And we already do see that a little bit in the DeFi space. So now, even a bit apart from the DeFi space on let's say, large centralized crypto exchanges like Kraken Futures, for example, um, which Kraken is a fully licensed uh, bank in the United States and uh, one of the largest crypto exchanges there is right now. We see innovation come to bloom that, as you mentioned, hasn't really been possible in the traditional system due to its very, very natural limitations. For example, perpetual futures where well, liquidations happen fully automatically. There's no possibility really to lose more than your um, collateral, lose more, than, lose more money than you have in very easy terms. And also maybe a bit oversimplified, but those perpetuals just keep going as you continuously either pay a fee to the other side. If you are long, for example, or you pay it to a short side or the other way around, depending on which side is more popular right now. So we're already seeing a lot of really cool stuff happening. But overall, is any of the native, crypto native options and future trading platforms mature enough for institutional investors coming into the crypto space that want to really hedge the risk of their large cap and mid cap coin exposure? What do you think? I think it would be very difficult at this point for uh, a large institution to come in and use a lot of those platforms. One of the things that you mentioned was the lack of liquidity in some of the, the options. And that's something that is very, very necessary. Again, part of that is driven by having counterparties, having market makers in, involved in the space. That, and there, there are ways for them to hedge out their risk and things like that. This idea of uh, liquidity is really important in financial markets. And so 
Right now, size is kind of a problem, you know, being able to go out and uh, say, I want to grab futures on a large block of, of cryptocurrency, or I want to be able to uh, write options on a large, that's a, that's a very difficult thing to do right now to, to facilitate those kinds of volumes. And that kind of cries for a little bit of consolidation. We may see some sort of a consortium. And by the way, I don't know anything. Don't read between the lines here, but we may see some kind of a consortium of institutions get together to create some some kind of what I would call dark pool type of uh, type of structure so that they can have those kinds of size or the opportunity to execute in size. The thing about hedging and depending on derivatives as a hedging you you have to have some assurance that they're going to be there. You have to have some assurance that you're going to get have a certain level of liquidity Otherwise, you introduce a level of risk that sometimes makes this not possible or, or very, very difficult to use. And so liquidity, volume, those kinds of things are very important if institutions are to, to move into the space in any kind of size. And as I said, right now, even things like pricing, do we think about pricing these like we do Black-Scholes-Merton? Maybe, but on a perpetual future, that's a very, very different kind of uh, different kind of thing. You know, perpetual futures, as you said, they basically have a, a, a margin call every day and very, very similar to, to what uh, traditional futures have. But this goes on in perpetuity or can until you close your position. So there are, I think, some, some real limitations right now. Now, I see volume starting to really increase on some of the exchanges. I see the number of active traders in the millions in North America and Europe and parts of Asia. We are seeing a lot of volume start to come in as those maybe start to consolidate around specific exchanges. Then I think that there, there's an increase in that assurance, assurance of liquidity, assurance of the, the right amount of investment being placed in these different institutions that will allow you to actually hedge out different kinds of uh, cryptocurrency risk and take advantage too. It's not just hedging. It's about taking advantage of opportunities. You already mentioned this kind of call it, galactic growth in the Bitcoin and the Ethereum derivative market. So Bitcoin open futures increased 100% year to date, eight times since uh, April last year to 20 billion trading volume for Bitcoin futures reached 2 trillion in April, which is six times the trading volume one year ago. So, I mean, there's definitely, there's a big movement, we would say. And, and this is a kind of accompanied by product innovation. You both talked about perpetual futures already. We mentioned on-chain options trading platforms emerging. Recently, we saw Bitcoin volatility indices being established by CryptoCompare and also by Deribit, for example. Now, I think a kind of tricky question, Jimmy, uh, what do you think what's next on the product side? An investable product on volatility index, uh, much stronger algorithmic cryptos option trading, or, or where do you see the whole thing heading? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. And so I think that it, I would say it's, it's in a couple of different directions. I certainly believe that we're going to see some listed products here in the US ETFs and things like that on cryptocurrencies. I, I think it's just a matter of time before the SEC approves one. And I know there have been already a number of different institutions that have tried to float something like this. So I, I certainly think that we're going to see some exchange traded some more exchange traded derivatives on different cryptocurrencies and baskets of cryptocurrencies and things like that. So that's one area that I'm, I'm sure will happen in the not too distant future. Again, I don't have any inside knowledge, so don't read anything into that. But, but I do think we're going to see those kinds of things, which give a wider exposure. You know, just uh, as a little bit of an aside here, I still keep in touch with a lot of people in the money management space, both on the institutional and on the, on the retail side, large retail side. And I'm receiving calls more and more and more often from money managers saying, I'm, I'm getting a lot of questions from my clients around how to get exposure in the crypto space. They're seeing all this news, they're seeing all this growth, and they're wondering how do they get exposure? So certainly there is a lot more interest there than, than we see today. So I think there, the interest is there. We're starting to see you know, some product being developed that's similar to product in the traditional space. And as you mentioned, there are a couple of cryptocurrencies that you can buy 
you can buy derivatives on in the, the traditional markets, but it's a fraction of what is actually out there. So I think that on both sides, we're going to see an increase. I think we're going to see an increase in the traditional space. Honestly, as you were quoting those numbers, I mean, those sorts of market makers, those exchanges, they love that business. So the idea that they won't try to increase that business is, you know, is just insane. They are definitely going to try to increase that business. So I would fully expect to see more product coming from the traditional space. In the DeFi space, I think we're, we're going to see both things that mirror the more traditional structures as well as some, some new things. So we, we talked kind of at the beginning a little bit about things like swaps. Well, if you're a retail investor, for the most part, in a traditional financial services company, you can't really access things like swaps or swaptions or, or anything along those lines. Those are institutional products. But in the DeFi space, you can. I think we're finding out now that as, as people start to explore these other sometimes over-the-counter traded derivatives and things like that, you're going to see more and more of those types of things manifest themselves in the crypto markets. Now, there, there is a caveat to all of this, and that is when these things start happening, when, when people start rolling these new kinds of smart contracts out, there isn't a lot of history around them. So understanding what the risk of these is, fully understanding the risk, is, is really difficult. And so this is one of those buyer beware things where you should really understand very, very well what you're entering, or at least as well as you can, but be, be an observer, be a, a learner, be a student of these things too. Jumping on to the next bandwagon is probably not a great idea. I would think that you would want to understand these, but things like, you know, volatility trades, VIX type trades, or anything like that. I think anything that can be imagined, we can now do in the DeFi space. It's just, you, you might be able to imagine it, but can you carry it to its logical conclusion? How does this manifest itself under different market conditions? The other thing I think that we're, we're probably going to see as these some of the cryptocurrencies become more and more prolific as we're using them in different ways as they start to be, as we start to trade different sorts of derivatives on them and things like that, is we're going to start to look kind of like we do in more traditional finance around what are what are some corollaries? What are some correlations? Can we do a little machine learning to understand probable distributions as far as, you know, paths forward and other other sorts of variables that we might be able to use to understand performance characteristics under different kinds of market conditions, things like that. That's a very interesting uh, outlook. Sometimes the institutional adoption, or sometimes it's wrong, the institutional adoption also depends on, let's say, the regulatory environment, which is quite heterogeneous if we look around the globe. But, but let's look at the U.S. regulation for crypto and digital assets. At least in the last couple of months, things got kind of traction. So, I mean, middle of last year, the, the OCC, so controller for the currency, published a letter clarifying that national banks can provide crypto custody services Very recently, the Biden administration is reported to develop a regulatory framework for the cryptocurrencies market with Treasury uh, Ministry. In addition, we see kind of crypto-knowledgeable people moving in key positions. For example, the new chairman of the SEC, Gary Gensler. And we have some pro-crypto people like Hester Peirce as SEC commissioner already. What do you expect to happen next in terms of regulatory development in the US in general? And maybe or if you have some indication on this with regards to crypto derivatives. I think that you're going, it's certainly, as you said, an area of interest for regulators. Regulators around the world are looking at cryptocurrency, look, not, not so much at the derivatives, but the cryptocurrency themselves. As you mentioned, the OCC came out with a letter last year or early this year, which has been frozen by the current administration while they, they do a little bit more work on it. But those kinds of things, you, you can't stop this train. There was a, a quote out from the Fed not too long ago saying that, Cryptocurrency is a, an asset, a value asset. And so the, the fact that you have so many different areas of the regulatory authorities that are working in the cryptocurrency space, certainly in the United States, you have the CFTC who, who monitors some derivatives. You have, the, you have the SEC that has weighed in, as you said, on, on some. And 
I mentioned the fact that we will probably see some ETFs and things like that roll out in the, the not too distant future. But then you have the Federal Reserve that has been doing a lot of work in the space. In particular, we've seen quite a bit come out around uh, central bank digital currencies. And so they are very aware of the space. They are certainly not asleep at the wheel. I think that there are some other agencies that, or, or quasi-government agencies that are also very, very interested in this. Of course, you know, places like the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the, the group in the United States that insures all banks, they're going to have a, a viewpoint in that. They, in fact, they just formed a, a very specific, significant partnership with Duke University, with the, the FinTech and the cybersecurity program to explore different areas of banking and things like that in the FinTech space. There are agencies that are looking at this from a number of different perspectives. And, and I think most significant is you see them looking at things from an institutional perspective, not just from a retail investor perspective. And so I think that kind of gives some insight into the fact that these regulatory agencies have already basically said, we know that institutions want to get in this space. We know institutions want to become more active in cryptocurrencies. And so they are developing those regulations, they're developing interest and things along those lines. So the fact that they're involved means that there is some impetus to, to doing that. And I think that is the wish by large institutions to, to become much more active in the cryptocurrency space. And when I say institutions, I mean both the buy side and the sell side. So you, you are seeing a lot of activity in the, the regulatory sphere around those. I, I believe that will only increase. I don't think that we're going to see anyone say that, you know, this isn't, uh, this isn't something that they need to pay attention to right now. So that means a lot of different agencies are involved here and a lot of projects are going on uh, maybe in parallel. That brings us at the end of our interview almost naturally to our uh, golden question, which will also be about regulation. A golden question is normally a question which is a little bit challenging, where I want to know your very personal view or uh, listen to your very personal view on things and digital assets. So for today, our golden question is, or effectively, these are two questions. How do you see the U.S. in the international race for regulatory supremacy? And what would be your advice to the regulatory authorities or to the Biden administration? That is quite a golden question. So <laughs> I think that as far as where the United States is in the regulatory sphere, as I just mentioned, there are a lot of agencies involved. And one of the things about the United States that is, I know, very odd looking in from the outside, heck, it's, it's very odd from the inside, is how many agencies we have that seem to govern very, very similar assets. So within the realm of investments, retail investments in the United States, you know, in, in a regular retail investor, say retirement account, you have probably a half a dozen different agencies that regulate that from the SEC to the, maybe the CFTC, maybe the Options Clearing Corp, maybe the Department of Labor, all of those kinds of agencies. And then you have things like the 40 Act and, and things along those lines. So there, there are a lot of different regulatory bodies that will get involved. And then in those kinds of things, peripherally, the, uh, the Fed and OCC and, and those larger organizations, possibly even the FDIC if it's a bank. So I think that the U.S. is, is undertaking this, whether they become the model for the rest of the world still remains to be seen. Certainly in the area of digital currencies, we're seeing a lot of activity in China, right? They're, they're beta testing right now a, uh, a native digital currency. They, uh, they rolled it out to, I believe, three or four cities initially, and they have plans to roll it out to 10 other cities before the end of the year. The interesting there, thing there is they have their own national blockchain, And so they're, they're in a little bit different space than, than we are here in the U.S. And so that's kind of one factor. So where the U.S. is in this space, in this, you know, as a, as a world leader, I think it, it still a little bit remains to be seen. But I, I think that they are probably pursuing this more aggressively than most other places in the world. And so I think that, that may tend, so the, I, I think the natural tend may be for other places to a little bit glean on to what they're doing because they do tend to, to be doing this. 
also a lot of AML and KYC type of efforts come out of the United States. And, and that wraps a lot of the, the investment side into the regulatory structure. So I think that the U.S. can definitely become a leader. I don't think that's, it's a, it's a given right now in that structure. And I'm going to ask you to repeat the second part of your question again. Uh, okay. What would be your advice to the Biden and his administration or the regulatory authorities, what they need to do next? I think that they need to bring in more experts in the area, more people actually working in the area. I think having career regulators there is important. Don't get me wrong. You shouldn't throw them out because they understand the structure. They understand the, the frankly, the bureaucracy that goes around with it better than, than people from the outside. But I think bringing people in with a, a, an applied knowledge, I'm going back to my applied knowledge thing, but bringing people in with an applied knowledge of what's going on in the industry and then what's likely on the curve, not being swayed just by you know headlines in newspapers, but actually bringing people in who are part of some of the larger exchanges, people that are active in the DeFi space people that are creating platforms. I think it's, it's really imperative that they, they bring in that expertise. And, you know, uh, frankly, from the academic realm, to the extent that it can, one area of the world that has been, I think, very active in bringing the academic role in has been the Monetary Authority of Singapore, in particular around blockchain type uses, and to a lesser extent, some of the cryptocurrency and things like that. But they have funded a, a lot of grants to understand and to try to develop that academic thought. And I think that's something that is, is probably very, very valuable in these instances. As we've kind of talked about, one of the challenges for a lot of institutions is the lack of historical perspective, the lack of historical observations that we use for different sorts of things, understanding performance understanding regulation or how regulation should be applied, understanding risk and things along those lines. And so I think if the administration encourages some of that kind of thought, but brings in those people with both the applied and the theoretical knowledge, as well as the regulators, and it's a tough thing to do. I understand that those are not the three parties that usually play terribly well together, but we're moving into an area. If, if you think about this, so think about cryptocurrency and how fast This is a technology that's only a dozen years old. We've spent hundreds of years creating these marketplaces that are the New York Stock Exchange and those kinds of structures. Here we have something that is certainly not trading in the same kind of volume, but is a, certainly attracting global interest and it's attracting a very different kind of global interest. And by doing that, you know, we're, we're seeing how fast this is maturing, where I, where I said this is still nascent. It's come in 12 years that where exchanges and other parts of the financial community have taken hundreds of years to mature. So it's almost on an exponential type of not only growth curve, but I think maturity curve. So I think it is maturing very, very quickly. So I would encourage the Biden administration. I would also encourage the EU to do the same thing. I would encourage the UK to do the same thing. Bring in people who are actually active in the space. Bring in knowledgeable people like yourselves who are who are in this space and who are working in this space every day without that knowledge anything that regulators do is going to be dated before it even goes into place i think i absolutely with you on that one and uh, i think that also summarizes um, quite a lot of as you mentioned of our fears here in the european crypto space where of course i mean Two years ago, we didn't really have DeFi. It just exploded um, from maybe beginning of 2020 by a factor of 40, 50, uh, maybe even 60x by now. And of course, looking back just about two or three months, I was talking to a good friend of mine who's really one of the foremost experts on NFTs in the field. And we were talking about, hey, if, if you set up, for example, a product for institutionals in the DeFi space, a fixed income product or something, How can you do risk management? Um, can you short some of these DeFi coins? The things you get as rewards, the tokens, how can you like hedge your risk? It was really hard to figure out how to do that. But now, like three months later, all of a sudden you look at FTX and, for example, you have enough trading volume on even some more obscure DeFi coins to, to do that. And things are happening within months and not within, as you said, decades or maybe even hundreds of years as maybe historically 
we were used to as, as societies. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're 100% correct. We, we are seeing this exponential growth and exponential maturity occur in the, in the DeFi space. And I would think before too long, we do start to see some more packaged products. You mentioned fixed income products for you know the institutions. I, I don't think I'm going out on a limb at all by saying that I, I believe those will be very available in the not distant future. Products that maybe are considered a little simpler, but some, you know maybe simple fixed income type products, yield yield type products that people understand a little bit more. People can you know maybe look at with a, a little bit different kind of uh, lens, but be doing those in the DeFi space. So it may be a little bit more traditional structure. The underlying assets may be traditional, maybe non-traditional, but but the the structure of it is something that makes people a little bit more comfortable around the way that it's bought, it's sold, and the way it performs more than more than anything else. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at form versus function, then I think form is quite important for people not to be too afraid and to slowly get closer and closer and get involved. And then as soon as they understand everything more and more, then function can take over again and form becomes less important. I, I agree 100%. I think that what is probably going to happen is, as you said, form will will take place you know, for, and that will, that will get, that will raise a level of comfort. It will also, I think, hopefully imbue, I guess, a more regular or a more dependable level of liquidity that all of a sudden people can depend on a little bit more. People get uh, used to, and then as that, that comfort builds, of course, liquidity will build. That's, that's always the thing, right? We always talk about that critical mass for financial products. As we you know, roll out things that are in a comfortable or maybe a known form, and we start to build that liquidity, that will definitely boost the market. That will definitely draw more interest. And then, as you said, then then it will start to expand from there. The function can 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 broaden broaden out from that base. Absolutely, I think that's a very good summary of where we're at right now, where we're hopefully going. So, Jimmy, once again, really thank you for all of your insights. I think it was a great experience talking to you, and I think we've learned a lot already. So, thank you once again for taking the time today. Absolutely. I really appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to speak with you all. Fantastic questions. And uh, I would invite people, if you have any questions, if you have any thoughts, don't, don't hesitate to reach out to me. I always love learning more. As well as being a professor, I am a lifelong student. So I am always, uh, always happy to learn a lot more. I think that's a great mindset. And of course, absolutely necessary if you want to stay up to date and if you want to stay ahead in something as interesting as the crypto space. Yeah, absolutely. It's a uh, it's it's a space that is going to continue to change. So, I thank you all for for having me here today. It has been an absolute pleasure. Also, thank you of course to all of our listeners for staying with us, for going on this journey with us and yeah, I'm giving us the opportunity to have great people in a great environment and talk about the things that really matter. So, stay tuned for the next episode coming really soon. We're looking forward to welcoming all of you again to the next Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. All signal, no noise.